Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Jamie Dawn. And I'm Heather Strong Moore. And today we are talking about the book of Ruth. This is a smaller book. It's only four chapters. It tends to, I think, be limited in the way that people think about it. And I think people only associate it with a few specific things and then kind of move on. So we are excited today to really be unpacking it more, diving into more of the themes of female friendship and the redemptive story and work of God in the lives of his people. So let's dig in. All right. So Jamie, something fun that I hadn't noticed before until preparing for today is that the book of Ruth starts off saying in the days of the judges, which is fresh in our minds from our last episode of um, talking about Deborah and JL. So that's where we're picking up in the redemptive story. There's a reason why the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges is that it's in that same era of the Judges. Yeah. And it kind of reminds us of the despair kind of. So we start with famine and we are to get this picture of, again, the wild, wild west. So things are pretty crazy. We pointed out last week the way that the book of Judges ends is everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so I think when it says that's the time period, that's kind of the picture that we're supposed to get. Yeah. So let let me paint a little bit of a picture of some of the context and literary features of the book. I think it's fairly familiar for a lot of people, for anyone that is more churched. I think that the book of Ruth has at least come up um, for most folks, uh, but there is just a lot of really fun details about the book that we want to highlight today. So number one is that it is just a really elegantly written narrative. When we think about different books of the Bible, honestly, some of them are a little more clunky than others. <laughs> um, and some are just really masterful works of literature. And I, when I say literature, I don't mean fiction. I mean that it's still historical fact, but that the way that the historical fact is narrated and worked together is really lovely in the book of Ruth. You kind of start on a tragic note, a moment of crisis. You go through this hero's journey of this arc of trying to find their way and trying to make sense of their suffering. And then it ends on this really positive beautiful resolution. So just from a purely literary standpoint, the book of Ruth is just beautifully written and is such an interesting narrative. And we'll talk about this more when we talk about Esther, the book of Esther, but these are two books in the Old Testament that center specifically around the stories of women. And they have a lot of literary similarities that they're both just really well-written, really interestingly constructed, are just a great read from a literary standpoint. Yeah, and I think because it's such an intentional piece of literature, then when you see things like repeated words right in a row, things like that, then it's supposed to stand out to you. I think that's always the case, but I think it should almost be like highlighted all the more because it's such a, an intentional piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great observation. So something else that's fun when you think about why was the book of Ruth written, 
because again, it's fairly small. It's about people that are historically significant, but aren't necessarily heavy hitters on their own. So it's likely written during the era of the Kings, because we know from the end, spoiler alert, that it references King David. So we know it had to have been written after he's been king, (laughs) just logically. Um, And so what's really fun to note about that is during that historical time period in the ancient Near East, for the kings of Israel, but especially for surrounding kings in other nations, it was a really big deal to have a birth narrative for the king. So it was sort of a grand origin story, to put it in our own maybe cinematic terms, um, of an origin story of how did this person become king? Where did they come from? Where, how did they get to where they are? And what's interesting is David does not have a birth narrative. We don't meet him until he's already a teenager. So we meet him kind of well into his life. And obviously he still has an interesting origin story starting at that point, but we don't have a birth narrative for him that would fit what other surrounding kings would have. And what we have is the book of Ruth. And Ruth is about David's ancestor, his, I believe, great-grandmother, if I'm doing the math right. Um, or is it, yes, great-grandmother. Um, and so I think that's lovely, that that's God's choice, that God sees what's, what's important about David, his most successful king, is not necessarily let me puff David up more and let's mm-hmm. keep kind of spinning this elaborate tale about David and his grandeur. Let's instead focus on a woman who was an outsider, who would have been considered from a nation that was an enemy of Israel, who's marked by major tragedy and misfortune, who's then an immigrant in Israelite culture, and that this is who God wants to elevate and highlight as an important factor of laying the groundwork for King David. And so I love that, that God chooses to elevate a woman and his female ancestor in saying, here's where this king came from. Here's his roots. This is what has made him into the person that you see. I think that's so beautiful and so important because David ends up being kind of one of these like anchor characters that we just keep coming back to in scripture. And so that makes his origin story very important. Um, And so for me, the book of Ruth comes into this beautiful play of like the way that our, the big story of God intersects with the particularities of our story. And so I love that Ruth, we get these really um, like the tensions of their personal stories and the way that it plays out in the larger picture of the redemptive story that God's writing through history. So I think as we think about how do these stories speak to us as we uncover our own place in God's story, I think that's a really beautiful picture of that, that God is working in this grand way. And he wants to meet us in the particularities of our own stories. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I think that's also just a beautiful theme of Ruth that sometimes just living our lives in normal ways can lead to just being part of something much bigger. And that's what it is to follow God is to be part of something bigger, which I love. Yeah. So also one other theme of Ruth that I think people ignore is a really beautiful theme of female friendship. And when we talk about friendship in the Bible, we might talk about Jesus and the disciples and 
usually nine, nine and a half times out of 10, the example I hear is David and Jonathan, which is also a very good example of friendship. No, no shade to that. <laughs> they are great friends. Um, but I think Ruth and Naomi are also a really beautiful picture of friendship because as we'll read, they start off being family. They start off being related that Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, but then all the men in their family die. And at that point, Ruth has no familial obligation to Naomi. She doesn't owe her anything. They don't have any bond. There's no, there were no grandchildren from that marriage. There were no children. And so they don't really have anything connecting them any longer. And what I think is so special is at that point, it becomes about friendship, mm -hmm. even though there is an age difference, but Ruth chooses to stay with Naomi out of a sense of love and, and loyalty and commitment that I think we only assume is related to their family bond. And I don't think that we give enough credit to the fact that Ruth has no obligation and that it is mere, uh, purely an act of friendship for her to remain with Naomi. I love that so much. And you and I had talked before about just the references often to David and Jonathan, and I didn't even place that um, lineage to Ruth. And like, I wonder where he got that from, you know, we learn things from our family traits. And so Ruth kind of, it seems to be that she paints a picture of really a loyal family that, um, matter friendship matters in their family. And so you have to kind of think David learned that along the lines from his, the lineage of his family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So let's go ahead and read that part. It's get, there's some verses that I do think are usually the most often quoted from the book of Ruth, of Ruth's declaration of commitment to Naomi, uh, but it is really lovely. So it's worth rereading. So I'm going to read from Ruth chapter two, verses 15 through 21. And um, Na uh, Ruth's other sister-in-law, um, Naomi's other daughter-in-law has left to go back to her family at Naomi's urging and, but, but Ruth hasn't left yet. And so picking up in verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you where you go. I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So that's a tough and sad moment, but also a really powerful moment of, again, like we said, Ruth doesn't owe Naomi anything. And in fact, she has other options because earlier in the chapter, Naomi says like, go back to your father's house. So it's implied that Ruth's family is still living. Her father's still living. So she's not destitute. Mm 
So she could go back to stay with her family, her family of origin and be remarried and keep having a life in Moab. But she doesn't do that. She chooses between multiple options. She chooses to stay with her friend, Naomi, and to take on the life that Naomi will be leading from here on out. And obviously we have this lovely expression as well of Ruth recognizing the God of Israel as a God that she wants to claim for herself. So like, I get emotional every time I read these, like where you stay, I will stay to the point where she's really saying I'm leaving this country and not looking back. It's very much a burn these ships kind of moment of like, there's no turning back for me after this. And I would think that would be real betrayal to her family. And, um, and this is, they went there to escape what was happening in Israel. And so she says, I'm going to go back kind of with uncertainty. And so it really, there's nothing. So she has certainty in her father's house and she chooses a different way, um, which I think is very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And obviously (laughs) Naomi's not, uh, a barrel of monkeys right now. <laughs> like Naomi is not an easy person to be around. I appreciate Naomi's honesty and bluntness when they get back to her home community in Bethlehem of being like Naomi, her name that meant pleasant. She's like, call me Mara, which means bitter because that's how I feel about my life now that I went away full and just feeling like life was full of possibilities and new beginnings. And here she's met nothing but tragedy of losing her husband and both of her sons with no grandchildren. And so she feels very bereft. And I just appreciate her being honest about that. And I appreciate Ruth's desire to stay with her friend in her darkest hour at her worst moment when Naomi was probably very depressed. You know, she's probably obviously going through a lot and would not be the easiest person to be around as none of us would be in that situation. And so I also think Ruth's loyalty to her, her willingness to stay with her and be consistent and a comforter and someone she can rely on at that time is such a beautiful example of what it means to really be a friend to someone through thick and thin and the kind of friend that Jesus is to us. And so I think it's so lovely that Ruth is choosing the God of Israel and she's already living her life and treating other people in a way that is truly a foundation that Christ will build on when he comes. Yeah. I think about how in the old Testament, one of the Hebrew words for love is hesed. And we don't have a great way of translating that word. Um, love is kind of too simplistic of what that word really carries with it. And, um, it really has this connotation of loyalty to it, which I see a lot more now after honestly reading uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible more. Um, Sally Lloyd Jones, shout out to her for drawing that out of Hesed. And so she uh, uses this language of God's never giving up loyal love. And it really has helped me see that throughout the Old Testament in particular, of that's part of what 
God is communicating to his people in his love. And so I think we get in Ruth a picture of Yahweh's love. And I think she saw that in her own experience. She chooses now to say, I want to follow Yahweh. Um, That's a huge moment of those vows that she makes. And then I think she becomes this model of what it looks like to image God's loyal love to other people. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in many ways, I think similar to Hagar and we didn't talk about Rahab recently. We will talk about Rahab's story when we get to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew one. So that will be coming in a few weeks, but that Ruth is part of this legacy of Gentile women of women who are outside of the Hebrew lineage, you know, the Hebrew ethnicity who are recognizing the person of God in a very profound and truthful way. Um, and of God revealing himself to people who are outside of the faith, but in a way that pulls them in and in a way that shows them this can, this is real and true. And this can also be a place of belonging for you as well. So good. I want to go back. You were talking about Mm -hmm. um, Naomi's name change. And so she says, you know, I used to be identified as pleasant and now call me bitter. Um, and I think I've heard a lot of people kind of make this really negative commentary about Naomi, um, out of that, that like she doesn't. And I think it's accurate that she is saying I came back empty. And if you were Ruth, you might feel like crap in that moment where you're like, actually, I left my family to be a part of this. Um, but that's our own. I mean, we actually don't see that Naomi and Ruth don't seem to have any conflict around that, but, um, either way, I think we don't see any commentary about that in the text. We see instead an acknowledgement of that. I think the fact that it's included is significant because it points to the redemptive arc of the story and I think the fact that the women kind of come around her it seems like in the community um and we'll point this out again at the end but I feel like it's important to say that the women seem to help her have eyes to see the redemption of the Lord in her life and I think they can only do that because they were able to acknowledge with her the bitterness of her experience because they they do kind of acknowledge like is that even Naomi like it doesn't even really look like her she's been through so much like it seems like the trauma is basically showing like on her face um and so they are acknowledging what her grief has looked like in her life and I I just think about how powerful that is of an example of anytime we are seen by other people and named accurately of yeah life has been very hard to you that's accurate um I think that's a really beautiful picture of community that comes around her Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I I think you're right I think that I've probably vaguely absorbed negative perceptions of Naomi that like at best she's a big downer (laughs) Um, and like maybe at the most extreme that she's not really trusting God or she's so mired in her own loss that she's not paying attention to what God is doing, et cetera. 
and neither would I in her situation. <laughs> you know, like I just think we don't often have enough compassion for it, Naomi, and just enough appreciation that she's just being honest about what's going on in her life. And she's not like putting a smiley face on it and being like, but I'm living in victory or whatever. <laughs> and I think we often pressure each other, certainly in the modern Western church to be like, but God is good. Um, I'm going through all this, but the Lord will get me through, et cetera. And that's true. God is good. God will get us through things, but it, it doesn't have to be this either or of either you're suffering and don't believe, or you have uh, sunshine and roses and smiles and everything's fine. Like it can definitely be both. You can be deeply suffering and God can still be in the midst of your experience. And you might not feel that for a while. God can be there without us feeling it and being able to tell that he's near us. And I think that's so clear in Naomi's story. God obviously is in, in her story. God obviously is ministering to her through Ruth and through the overarching uh, way that the story will unfold. And she doesn't feel that right then. And that's okay. I don't think that she's criticized for that. I don't think she's being punished or reprimanded for that. I think she's allowed to express what she's feeling and the way that she's being affected by the deep tragedy that she's going through. And God feels far away to her in that moment. And she feels like God has abandoned her and she's allowed to express that. Yeah, I think it's such a, the way people respond to her is such a picture of like toxic positivity that people are like <laughs> offended that the Bible doesn't make commentary on her bitterness and it doesn't it actually I see her as a woman of really robust hope that she's very honest and she keeps moving forward like she's the one who kind of gets together with Ruth and makes a plan for where she should glean and kind of draws upon the laws of there's provision for you as a Moabite woman in our culture and so they are I see that as really a kind of gritty hope that she embodies there of I'm going to be very honest and also just keep figuring out what it looks like to move forward. Yeah, that's such a good point that she, yeah, exactly. Naomi is the one who still is kind of the driving force of how are we going to live <laughs> mm -hmm. and like, let's be practical and still figure out how to sustain ourselves that she obviously hasn't completely given up. And I don't know if we give her enough credit for that. And this is what's coming to my mind too, as we're thinking about her talking to her old community and explaining like, my name was this, but call me this, because this is how I feel. That actually feels like an echo of the Psalms to me, mm -hmm. of the Psalms, the Psalmist being very brutally honest and saying, I feel like God has turned against me. I feel like the wicked are prevailing. I feel like I'm alone and abandoned. Um, and I do think that's interesting as Naomi would not be a biological ancestor of David, but would be, you know, in just the, uh, sur the surrounding family of David, that I think he also builds on that legacy, even of Naomi, that of this idea of like, be honest about what you're going through and proclaim that before the Lord and allow the Lord to join with you, whether it feels like he's with you or not. 
and, and see what happens, see how God does meet you in your story. That's such a fun link of their stories. I really like that. Yeah. So the story goes on from there where, um, Ruth, she does start, uh, basically they realize again, we kind of read pieces of the law, um, where there's provision for a foreigner and for, um, widows. And so she goes out to this place, which that's where we again, get another glimpse of Ruth's kind of courage. And I just love, she's kind of gritty. She's like, I'm not afraid to do things. And she goes into a place where there is potential for real violence and she doesn't seem to really hesitate. I, I assume probably that they're honest about it because she, um, it seems like Naomi and Ruth kind of have some coaching sessions afterwards too. Cause she comes home, she talks about who helped her and, um, how things went. And so she's helping her navigate what could be a situation of actual violence for her. Um, which I think is fun to think about. Like it, there's a clear connection for them of she comes home, she talks about her day. Just the fact that we don't often get details like that in scripture is fun to me that we have these moments of kind of just their conversation of how she was provided for throughout the day. And so we get introduced to this character, um, where we see Boaz and, uh, we kind of get the indication that Naomi's eyes kind of light up of like, oh, actually, that's a good field to be in. And it's the beginning where we start to see the Lord really providing uh, for these women, um, just that in providence of the Lord, that's the field that she ends up in. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, similar to, it'll be similar to the book of Esther that God's not directly mentioned very much other than Ruth's profession of her commitment to God. After that, they're not like, oh, and God led me to this and God has clearly paved this path, et cetera. And yet it's clear that God's hand is at work. And so, yeah, there's a lot of similarities in the book of Ruth and the book of Esther that there are divine coincidences where you would say <laughs> that wasn't a coincidence. That was the Lord. <laughs> Um, and that's, yeah, one of the first of multiple throughout the book that she happens to go to this field of Boaz and just some fun shout outs to Boaz because we love our male allies. Um, <laughs> that he, he clearly has a high regard for the law, for the Torah, um, because like you were saying, Jamie, it's commanded in the Torah that when you're harvesting, you should leave some pieces of grain, some pieces of the harvest in the field so that foreigners and widows can come gather for free. Um, and it's not supposed to be a ton, but it is supposed to be an offering to the Lord to provide for the poor in your midst. And so that's what Ruth is doing. And at this point, Ruth is an immigrant. Um, and in, like, in some ways you could see her as a migrant worker in a sense that she's doing what she has to do in this new country um, where she didn't have anything to go back to in her other country or chose not to. Um, and here she is finding a new way for herself. And Boaz is following the law and is very conscious of God commanded us to do this. The, the Torah says there should be no poor among you. 
you're supposed to all live in a way that no one is destitute or with no option. And so Boaz is following that and is clearly a man who does honor the Lord and wants to honor the Lord in all of his decisions, both in his personal devotion to God and his business decisions and the way that he's living his life. Yeah. And he even makes sure to tell the other workers to like leave enough for her and basically don't bother her. So if they were to try and like have some sort of sexual violence towards her, um, they knew that they would have to pay for like report to Boaz on that basically. And so I think that's another example of just how protective the Lord is, but how Boaz steps into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So continuing in their story. So Ruth is like, wait a second, this guy is, we have a connection to him. He's a kinsman redeemer, um, which was also part of the law that again, the, a big part of the law is to prevent generational poverty. It's to prevent families from falling into a state where that they can't come back from. And so what would happen is if you if a husband died and there were no heirs, there were no children, that the next potential male relative could marry that wife and have children through her that would continue that husband's family line, the, the one who had passed, that would continue his family line and ensure that they would have a place to live in the land and would have provision um, and, and a future for their family and for their descendants. So, um, so that's a big part of the story and that may potentially be more familiar to everyone, but in case that was new, that's what that's about. So yeah, so then Naomi hatches this um, plan that's a little risky, a little bold for sure to send Ruth to the, th the threshing floor as they are um, preparing the barley harvest and they're separating the grain from the stalks of the barley. So it's a, it's a you know, several days task in concluding the harvest so they're they're like camping out there essentially so naomi sends ruth out there in the night <laughs> um, to essentially kind of propose to boaz and make herself known to him in terms of like hey i'm open to getting married i would like to get remarried we have a potential commitment and bond with one another will you fulfill that? Like, will you get married to me? Um, and so there's been quite a bit of debate and discussion about what exactly Ruth does on the threshing floor. <laughs> um, and the, the text talks about her uncovering his feet. And there's a lot of buzz, I think, amongst scholars and on the internet of, does that, is that a euphemism for other things, if you will? Um, is, yeah, is she essentially making a sexual advance? If so, to what extent, what does that mean, et cetera? So first of all, I, I don't know that this debate matters all that much. I don't think it's meaningless, but I also don't think the story hinges around this. Uh, and sometimes I think we talk about it to be a little bit sensational um, and be like, look, look what's happening in the Bible. Um, and like, honestly, there's plenty of sensational things in the Bible. <laughs> this is pretty tame. This is pretty PG. 
honestly probably G-rated compared to a lot of other things. So I don't know that we have to go hunting for um, sensational things in the scripture. But yeah, Jamie, what would be some of your thoughts on this interaction on the threshing floor and what might be happening? So I do think, um, I agree with you that I think there's like just kind of some, we like to find little nuggets in there. And I would say if what we're doing is trying to say and affirm her pursuit of Boaz, that that is not traditional, um, that's accurate. Like she is pursuing him in that moment. And I think that is significant. Um, and I think, you know, it's possible that it's an allusion to that feet that does seem to be like a sexual innuendo. Um, but I would also say that we, we don't have many places in scripture where God or the text, it seems to be afraid to talk about those things. And so we talked about that in our episode about assault. We talked about that in our episode about menstruation, like where we are often, you know, trying to like think of other ways to refer to things. Um, God doesn't seem to be doing that. And so I think there's something to the fact that later when they do get married, they do use very clear language to indicate that they have sex and then get to like have children that God blesses them in that particular way. And so, um, I think because we have that moment where the text is clear, it would seem kind of strange to say that we're like having innuendos at that point. Um, and I would just say it doesn't, it doesn't seem to like matter a ton. <laughs> so um, if we're trying to say that Ruth is really powerful by doing that, I think that's an accurate statement. I think she's very courageous. She's going out at night. We've already acknowledged like being a foreigner heading out to the fields at any time, but especially at night would be a very risky choice. And then I think even just, um, not to overly romanticize the story, cause I think that happens too, but, um, I think even emotionally she is setting herself up for rejection. And so he could easily say, no, um, I'm not going to do that. And, um, so she, is courageous and going out at night and setting herself up for um, a lot that could happen. And just that reality of he could say no. And, um, and so I do think there's a lot there that gives us a picture of who Ruth is in a very um, courageous, really bold way that I think can be celebrated. Um, I, I do always have to ask myself the question, like, am I strangely prudish about like I just don't want that to be the case of the threshing floor um but I just don't think we have enough places in scripture where they're very shy about that for us to get the indication that they're trying to be very subtle about it in my opinion right I know I have the same thought very similarly and yeah I'm like am I being too like conservative or squeamish if you will. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I said, to, I agree with you, Jamie, that there are so many places where it's pretty clear about 
sexual encounters and even female seduction. And another woman that's in the, the lineage of Christ and then the line of David that we'll talk about in our episode on Matthew 1 is Tamar, who not so subtly seduces her <laughs> father-in-law. <laughs> like it's, it's a crafty story. I, it, it's very interesting. We'll talk about it. We'll get to that. Um, but yeah, the scripture is just not very shy about it. And so mostly I don't want us to like engage in wild speculation or reading into it that isn't really necessary and isn't really crucial to the text. I don't think it makes Ruth a negative figure if there was some kind of sexual encounter. And obviously the, the book of Ruth itself doesn't like doesn't describe her or the situation in any kind of negative way. So I think what's clear is that whatever happened was an act of faith and boldness and hope on her part that she was going to put herself out there and take some real risks in the pursuit of security, of family, of a future for herself and for Naomi. And so I think that is the important thing for sure is what did it, what was, what was at stake for her to do this? Um, and I think that's, that's what we are to, to elevate as like her character and the good things about her. Um, and also I think the way that Boaz reacts to her and the situation to me feels non-sexual that he says, like he commends her. He says, you're a woman of noble character. And to me, that doesn't sound like a post-encounter kind of <laughs> conversation <laughs> that they have. I think it's very possible that the overture that Ruth makes could have sexual implications, but to me, it doesn't seem like anything that the, that encounter goes further than that, that anything is acted upon in the moment. Um, and I love that the way that Boaz describes her in chapter three, verse 11, where he says, you're a woman of noble character. That's the same language that we see in Proverbs 31 about um, a, a wife of noble character is hard to find, which again would be written by a descendant of Ruth, mm -hmm. which I love, <laughs> um, by King Lemuel, um, who would have been a descendant of David. So I love that it seems like Ruth's descendants are very shaped by her legacy and that they know what it looks like to be a faithful friend and to be faithful to the Lord through the example that she has provided. Um, so yeah, so to me, again, I don't think it's some kind of deal breaker of what exactly happens on the threshing floor. I think that we know, again, Ruth is acting in hope, in a desire to honor the Lord, in a desire to see herself and her, her friend, Naomi, flourish. And I think it's very clear that Boaz also wants to honor the law in this, the law about being a kinsman redeemer, that he's very attentive to what are the nuances of the law and how are we being responsive to that? And how can we follow through on God's desires to make sure everyone in the land is provided for and everyone has a future? Yeah, I was just about to say that because he knows the law and we are so clear on how well he knows the law um, that part of their conversation is that he says to her, well, yes, I'm committed to doing this, but there's someone that we kind of have to ask first. 
And for all the reasons that we talked about in a few episodes before, a sexual encounter would have made that a very strange moment when he came to these men in kind of the city gates where they're having this conversation of, are you going to be the kinsman redeemer? Cause you kind of have the first, um, you're the first person in line. Um, and I think, I, I think there's reason to believe that because of the way he knows the law, because of the way he's being so upfront about that, it kind of gives us a picture of what maybe didn't happen there maybe some gray areas, you never know. <laughs> I, think, um, I do think there's something to his uh, righteousness and the way that he's approaching the law, um, even in his respect for the other men in this story, I think is important. Yeah. Yeah. That Boaz would know how much God values fidelity. And that is true. That in sexual in human sexual relationships and it's important to god because of his fidelity to us his people that god is the most faithful to us and is wholeheartedly committed to us no matter what and that's part of why god cares about what happens in our sexual relationships because where we experience fidelity or infidelity shapes how trustworthy we think god is going to be um, we are very much shaped to view God the way that people treat us, which is why it's so important as Christians to treat each other in Christ-like ways so that we could believe that Christ is real and Christ is trustworthy. Um, and so I think Boaz, it's clear that he honors the Lord and understands God's heart in the law. And I think he would understand God's love of fidelity and faithfulness and of commitment and making a pledge and standing by it. So yeah, to me, that does show, I don't think that he would just take advantage of an opportunity to get with Ruth, <laughs> um, for lack of a more delicate way to put it, um, that I think he, he would have honored the law and made sure I'm not disrespecting someone else's potential commitment before making sure that I am ready to make this commitment myself. Right. So we do see him in the city gates and having this conversation where he brings that up and brings it to the, um, the other person who has the opportunity to make that commitment. Um, and that person says no. And so Boaz, um, does make his commitment to Ruth. And so we see that picture of redemption. Um, and I think, I think we are supposed to see that arc of, the way that the Lord redeems our stories, the way that that is this, um, very Christ-like picture. Um, I would point out that I, I do believe there's Christ-like parts in both, um, of these figures. And so I think it's just important for us to name that reality. Um, but I do think Boaz becomes this picture of how God is redeeming our stories and how he does rescue us from, um, our despair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, Jamie, I like that you mentioned that they both mirror Christ in their own ways. So, um, so we're going to pick up from what happens after the, that kind of commitment statement. So they're having this moment where they are meeting at the city gate. And then we just really love this blessing. So 
um, kind of tune your ears to who is mentioned as this is going on. So this is uh, Ruth chapter four, and we'll pick up in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is worth more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And it goes on from there to have that lineage statement about um, the, the family line that comes from this. But I think there's so much beauty uh, from there, this really rich maternal blessing for uh, Ruth. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, as we've talked about in our episode on the matriarchs, we hear a lot about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I love that as they're praying a blessing over this couple, over Boaz and Ruth, and specifically then over Ruth, that they're invoking the matriarchs in saying, may Ruth be blessed in the same way that our female ancestors were as well. And uh, when, when we talk about Tamar's story, um, her story is very scandalous, <laughs> to be honest. So I think it's very just sweet and redemptive that Tamar's story continues to have this really beautiful arc and to be invoked for all the best parts of it, um, that Tamar is remembered for her faith and for her grit and determination to see her family continue and to see a future go forth. And that Ruth has been acting in a spirit of Tamar of I'm not willing to give up and I'm not willing to let this be the end of my story or the story of the family that I've been connected to. And so, well, yeah, I just love that so much that the, their those women's stories are recognized in a way of saying God moved through them and in their stories and may God work in your life in the same way that he's worked in the lives of our ancestors. I think I think is very, um, it's significant. It's kind of just clicking for me in this moment is that these are the people at the gate. So that would likely be predominantly men. There's probably like women around. Um, even the fact that it says we are witnesses, that would have meant it definitely was men talking just based on what we know about who was considered a witness. Um, and I think it's so important because what I often see happen in like modern church is that in a moment like this, the women would pray for Ruth. And so rarely do we see men kind of invoking the way that God was faithful to women. You save that for women. And this is about, you know, a blessing for Ruth, but I think they're talking about it for the whole household too. And so I think the fact that men are saying, may your experience be like Rachel and Leah is really beautiful and a really strong encouragement, I think, for us to bring these stories into our own understanding of how God has been faithful, that 
whether you are male or female, that this would be part of how you understand God's character is that you would say, I hope he's faithful to you in the same way that he has been faithful to Ruth and that we would be people who are consistently bringing up these stories, um, regardless of gender of how we're kind of navigating that. And I just think that's so important to have this picture really accurate, be very accurate in our imagination of what that scene is, that it's not what we would often see that, you know, the next time there's a women's ministry meeting or something, they celebrate the engagement, but that it's at the city gates with all these people. Um, and that the men are blessing Ruth in, um, in a very beautiful way that doesn't feel patronizing at all to me. Like it doesn't feel like you need this. It feels like this is a celebration and we want to bless you. Yeah. I think that's such a good point because you would think in that case of the men praying a blessing that they would be praying it over Boaz and that they would say, may you be like Jacob and may your descendants be like the descendants of Judah, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's really lovely that they sent her Ruth in this story when it, it, the interaction was initiated by Boaz, like Boaz was kind of in the middle of the conversation just because he's the one that's driving it. Um, and that they, they sent her Ruth and yeah, like to your point that they sent her the stories of the women in their spiritual history. And I think that's really lovely and shows that they felt connected to those women's stories as well and felt like this is something that they all knew to like pull out of that um, as they're like, Oh, let's pray right now. And they didn't have to do some research and be like, who are some ladies that we could talk about? You know, like, <laughs> but they're like, Oh yes. You know, these stories are really vibrant to us and let's, let's evoke them right now. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And because of the way, one of the things that's often repeated in this um, book is that Ruth is a Moabite. So very regular rhythm of Ruth the Moabite. And so to me, the fact that they're blessing her with their matriarchs is also a symbol of welcome. Like we no longer see you as um, kind of the outsider, but we are welcoming you in as a true woman in the image of our our matriarchs, but I love too that they talk about a woman like Tamar because I think that is, it kind of says like, you don't have to leave your history at the door for us to recognize you to also be like Rachel and Leah, but that we see you accurately, that we're welcoming you, but that you, you don't have to leave your history behind. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Go ahead. Something else that I love is that they bless Naomi later on. And so she is um, a part of this story still. And so the same way that she has come in and said, like, I'm empty, they say to her, you have the daughter-in-law who is like more to you than seven sons. And I think that's, you know, kind of uh, in some ways a strange compliment, I guess. Uh, for us, but it's so significant because seven is a biblical number of completion. So for them, they're basically saying like, Naomi, there is nothing lacking in your life. You are not missing anything because you don't have sons, 
but this daughter-in-law who has chosen loyalty to you has brought you into this redemptive story. And we recognize the way that God has been faithful to you. And it's kind of for her, her friends are gathering around her to celebrate the reality of her story that she was without sons. And so they're not, to me, it's another picture of really honest um, lament leads to hope. And so they're saying you were without sons. And now this daughter-in-law is you're complete. Like you, you are not lacking anything. And we celebrate that with you. Yeah. I was literally just about to talk about that as well, that they don't say, see, we told you it was going to be fine. You little worry wart, you, you know, <laughs> like there's no kind of rebuke or I told you so to her. I, and I love how you framed that, like, because Naomi in the beginning was so honest and blunt about what she was feeling. It then magnifies the extent of God's healing and restoration in her life that it's such a stark before and after. Whereas if she had been sort of downplaying and like pressuring herself towards toxic positivity, like you mentioned that I think it would then make their celebration less vibrant because it was like, Oh yeah. I mean, God's God was just like here all along, I guess. Um, but because it is such a significant, I w- I started in this place and now look at how far God has brought me. I do think that's such a beautiful journey and progression that they are marking and celebrating together. Two kind of minor notes that maybe are a rabbit trail, but, um, it, when it's celebrating Naomi, it says, the women of the neighborhood gave the son a name. And hmm. I think that's really beautiful that all the women who have rallied around Naomi to say, this isn't the end of your story. We're just going to sit with you and your grief um, are also the same people to say um, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Ovid. And so I think that's not traditional. (laughs) Like the women of the neighborhood are the ones naming, um, the child. And so that's really important. Again, it goes on to say like the lineage that he had. And so it's pointing to, even, I would say like that name being very powerful. And so the fact that, um, the women give it to him is important. And this has just always intrigued me. (laughs) So it's kind of, Um, it's a very minor point, but Naomi is, she has such a connection to this baby that she becomes the wet nurse for him. And I think that's very intriguing. Not the least of which, like, she probably is beyond the age of able to do that. (laughs) But it says they sat him on Naomi's lap and she fed him like... (laughs) And so I just have always, um, and became his nurse. And so I think, um, well, that's what we're to take from that. And I just have always found that to be so fascinating that her, it's kind of, to me, this picture of almost, um, like the restoration has almost made her like younger, um, that the joy has brought her into this, but also the way that she's so intimately, connected to this story. Um, and frankly, it's just very intriguing. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I don't know what to make of that, but it's very <laughs> interesting, like you said. And it kind of, in some ways, it harkens to in chapter one when she's telling Orpa and Ruth to go back to their families that she says, if I were to get married today and get pregnant immediately and have a new son, there would be no point in you waiting. Like by the time he was grown, it would be too late for you, et cetera. So it makes me think of that, that in her mind, she was like, it's too late for me. Mm. And even if I were to have another child, what would be the point? And in some ways, this feels like God saying it's, it wasn't too late for you, that there was still future for you and more life ahead of you. Yeah, that's really a beautiful point. And I think overall, I think we're to take from that, this clear picture of the way that the Lord has redeemed the story of these women. And I love that it, it ends with the lineage, but it ends with just female celebration. And I think that's really beautiful and not what we often see in scripture. And so I think, and really in any text, like, you know, we made reference to, like a cinematic test last episode of um, the Bechdel test. And I think the fact that we still have that kind of way of talking about film and stories of we have to pay attention to how women are talking to one another. Are they celebrating each other? Like all these things, the fact that we're still paying attention to that is makes that all the more significant that she, the story ends with just this, women gathering around celebrating the Lord's faithfulness and naming a child and all these pieces that I think are um really rich Mm -hmm. yeah that's so lovely and you had mentioned this to me as we were planning for this episode the parallels between Naomi and Job and Naomi's friends and Job's friends and I do think First of all, I had just never thought about Naomi as a type of Job as well, that there are a lot of similarities. She has lost her whole family suddenly and tragically. She feels like God has turned against her and um, she's navigating, where do I go from here? Is God still good? Has God, does God still have anything left for me? And goes through this journey of losing everything at the beginning and then having uh, an extensive restoration, like a sevenfold restoration of even more than she lost has God restored to her, which is so similar to the arc of the book of Job and Job's friends suck. <laughs> like They're the so word. unhelpful. They just kind of pile on him. They're saying like, well, what did you do, do wrong that all this is happening to you? And I'm so glad that Naomi doesn't have that, that her friends, it seems like just kind of allow her to be where she is and let her express herself and don't rebuke her for that. And then they're just ready to celebrate with her at the end. And especially to magnify the Lord. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's central. This is a beautiful picture of female celebration, but it's not just women being excited for each other. It's women being excited for what God has done in each other's lives and being able to mark that as a community. And because they were sharing that with each other, now they get to glorify the Lord together. 
uh, in, in walking with each other. So I think that's such a beautiful picture of kind of what could have been in the book of Job. Uh, we see a much more full and I think godly picture here in the book of Ruth. Yeah. Job's story ends because Job's friends question Job and the Lord. Um, and so we just don't see that from these women either. Um, and so Job's friends have to repent and kind of have this restoration moment before they can celebrate. And so I think it's very telling that because these women came around her when she was saying, I am bitter, like the Lord has taken things from me and she's quite honest about it. And what, um, just like you said, like what that sets them up to do is to celebrate the Lord without a hindrance of needing that moment of reconciliation and repentance. And so because they were able to come around her in grief, they're able to come around her in celebration as well in a very different and a way that we see real depth to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good, again, depiction of female friendship and of, I think, friendships that we could highlight more in scripture certainly than we currently do. So yeah, I love, I've loved digging into this story in fresh ways. It's one that probably of almost any of the ones that we talk about, I think is the most discussed or most, um, you know, preached about or talked about in Sunday school and whatnot. And so for me, even coming into this discussion, it was feeling slightly stale to me of, oh, how are we going to make this feel fresh. And we even prayed about that specifically beforehand, asking the spirit to help this just hit us in new ways. Um, so I want to glorify God for this discussion. And just even for you and I, I think as we are talking together in the spirit of this book and this female community, that I think the same thing has even happened for us. And I hope with our listeners that God has shown himself and appeared to us in fresh ways and shown his faithfulness in fresh ways. And that's been magnified by us sharing this together. That's so true. And I really do love the way I think it helps us in the same way that these women celebrating helps them name the things that God has done. It gives us clear eyes to see that in our own lives. And so I hope that is the case for you as you have um, been along with us today and that you get to see the ways that God is interacting with your story as well, that in, as he's writing this redemptive story uh, throughout the earth, that he is doing that in our own lives and very significant ways of our friendships, the way that God is bringing redemption into our life in every aspect of our lives. And so I hope that you take from this story great hope and encouragement. And I've been so thankful for the way that we have seen God's faithfulness and been invited into that in a new way. So thanks for joining us. And again, every time you share, it helps other people uncover their story. And so uh, we are thankful for the way that you are liking, subscribing, sharing the podcast. So when you do that, it does help others find it. So thanks for doing that. And thanks for joining us.